Kids, if you haven't yet, you can head out, by the way. <laughs> the bass drop is your indication that you can head out. Um, you know, sometimes your director of operations is on the Zoom and says the lights weren't plugged in on stage. So that's what I just did. So for any of you who that bothered you, um, it's now taken care of. Uh, good morning. My name is Scott. I am the lead pastor here at Jake's Well. And we're in a series in this letter written by an early Christian missionary, one of the apostles, Paul, to a church in a place called Philippi. And last week, if you were with us for Resurrection Sunday, we looked at the, uh, what one scholar calls the beating heart of this book, which is this, this hymn, what uh, Rachel had us read during the liturgy this morning, that could be something that Paul himself wrote, could be something that the early church uh, regularly sung or read together. Whatever it is, it's this beautifully layered articulation of the real core of Christian faith. It is um, a, a multi uh, sort of layered. We saw last week that within that beautiful passage, there is uh, the clear articulation of Jesus as the human being that we were all created to be, as the human being truly alive, if you will. Also within that, though, at one and the same time, is the articulation of Jesus as the one and only true God of the universe, as God incarnate. God in flesh. And the reason why I like this image of that, that poem, that hymn being the beating heart, is because like your actual physical heart, everything flows out from it and everything flows back to it. And so everything that we saw before the hymn in the book is kind of leading toward the hymn, and now everything afterwards, and we'll see this especially t today and, and next week, in next week's passage, is really everything flows out of that hymn, too. You're going to hear shared language from that hymn and all of those things. So let me read that and then set up uh, what Jonathan just read for us. And so the hymn goes like this. It starts in Philippians 2, chapter 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12. Therefore, <clears throat> my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, we see that word pop up a lot in Paul's letters. That connects it to what's gone before. As the saying goes, when you see a therefore, you should ask what it's there for. Exactly. And it's there to connect to the previous. So Paul is saying, in light of everything I just said about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the human being that we could not be, that Jesus is very God incarnate, the creator of the universe, having come to put on human flesh, that there's a reality that one day at the name of Jesus, at the vindication at the end, where Jesus will be presented as the true God of the universe, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, 
this is how you should respond. This is how you should live. In some ways, that therefore kind of belongs at the very front of the letter because the letter is very much a therefore. In light of what's said in that Christ hymn, that's the beating heart of the letter, this is what the, your manner of life should look like. And we've been saying just a little bit more content. I want to show you, one of my goals in this series was to show you how important it is to understand especially these letters in the New Testament as a whole and to see how it all connects together. Because remember that even the Christ hymn itself fits within a much larger section that begins all the way back uh, that Jalen preached a while back now in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And that's that uh, political word. Polituomai is, is the fancy Greek word for that. Your politics, the way you do life together, shouldn't look like the politics of this world. And in 2022, American context, we say amen to that, right? Like, our politics, our way of interacting, our way of navigating difference, our way of um, negotiating, uh, compromising with one another in love should look different than the way that the world, sometimes at this point, doesn't even pretend <laughs> to do that. And then it throws the Christ hymn in the middle of that. <clears throat> well, this, therefore, is just kind of doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on just how much this Christ hymn should influence the way we go about our lives. So therefore, and I don't want to miss the fact that he says, therefore, my beloved. <laughs> Someone's done a study on this, and it's really interesting, is almost every time that Paul addresses a, a group of people that he's writing to, most often he addresses them. Anybody have a guess? We've already seen in this letter. When Paul addresses the people, um, do you know what he most often calls them? Yeah, good. Brothers and sisters. Yeah, brethren. Um, brothers and, and sisters. That's normally the familial language. Every now and then he goes to this language, which is the language of, of beloved. Uh, we, we have this lingo in ours, right? You can have relatives, but you can also have loved ones, right? Like that's the word here is beloved. And somebody has, <laughs> has tracked that almost every time Paul goes to beloved, it's because he's about to say something hard, which is so, which is wonderful just rhetorically. Because why, though? Is it just a softening? Is it him, you know, softening them up? No, not really. I think what's going on here is he calls them my beloved before he says hard things precisely because he wants to remind them where it's coming from. He's saying, look, I'm not saying this because I am angry with you. I'm not saying this because I'm against you. I'm not saying this because I'm here to put. I'm saying this from a place of love. And that's certainly what's going on here is, therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, there's that obedience language. Already there's a connection to the Christ hymn. Christ who, who made himself nothing, being found in human form, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you have obeyed. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So my beloved, look, I... I I generally believe that you guys have been faithful. When I've been with you, I've seen good things from you, right? Every parent knows what he's talking about here. He's saying, yeah, I, you've been obedient and it's been great. But what about when I'm not around? That's what he's saying. Is he saying, look, I, I've seen good things from you. We've said this a lot about Philippians. Is, is the church of Philippi seems to be way on the, on the relative scale of health in these early churches, way on the side of health. It seems to be a healthy, good thriving church. And he says, yeah, when I'm with you, all signs point to things are going well among you. 
So not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Right? That's when the chips are down. Right? When the person that you tend to obey for is gone, you really find out what's in the heart of a person. Right? When the boss is gone for a week, <laughs> right? you find out just how committed that team is to the work that they're doing. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, I'm gone, right? He's in prison. He's hoping to get to them, but the reality is, even as he'll say at the end of this passage, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to see you again. So your obedience is going to have to be something about and for and sourced in something bigger than me, bigger than my presence with you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What a statement. Because I think for a lot of us who were raised uh, in churches like this one, in, in evangelical, in Protestant churches, right, we get very nervous about anything that sounds like us earning anything from God. Like The work of salvation is God's work. We believe, we receive, and that's about it, right? And there's a lot of truth in that, but there's also a slippery slope toward a kind of articulation of salvation, of the process of salvation, that actually isn't reflected in the New Testament. It might be reflected in certain theological systems, but it's not in the New Testament, right? Jesus is constantly messing with this. Think of his interaction that he has with a rich young ruler, where this rich, successful young man comes to him and he says, Jesus, what do I got to do to have eternal life? And if you're a good kid who grew up in church like I did, you go, I know the answer. Confess your sins. Believe that I'm a, I don't know what you do in that case because Jesus hasn't died yet, but like believe I'm going to die on the cross. Put your faith in me and you'll be saved. What does Jesus say to this guy? It's not the first thing he says. It's what he eventually says. First thing he says is, Obey the commandments. And what does my man say? I've done, all, I've done it all since my youth, which is like, wow, which might be where the error comes in, like, oh, wow, bro. Um, and then Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have. In other words, um, what's beautiful in that passage is that Jesus says, one thing you lack, and then he tells him to do something. And that something isn't something, isn't grabbing after something, it's releasing something. One thing you lack is you've got to give something up. In other words, there's something in your heart that's actually keeping you from the allegiance that you claim your obedience is coming from. Anyway, all to say, Jesus is way more comfortable saying that we have a role to play in the, whatever you want to call it, in the system, in the, in the function, in the mechanics of salvation than sometimes we do. And so does Paul. So he says, work out your salvation. Now, caveat number one, massive caveat. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. Now, that would, really, <laughs> that would really be a tough one to get around, right? Because even this passage, and if you're feeling a little nervous right now, don't worry, the next couple of verses will completely assuage any of your theological fears. But he does say, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. But what does he mean, work out your salvation? He's not saying something that the rest of the New Testament doesn't say. It's perfectly in line with the rest of the New Testament, which is we have a responsibility to live into what we have been given. That to put it the way that I've put it, it feels like a, a hundred times from, from this pulpit, is we are called to become what we already are in Christ. The New Testament is not shy to call us to actually live out the identity that we claim we believe we have received 
from Christ. Work it out. Live into it. The, the, the analogy, and I don't even think it's an analogy because the New Testament seems to indicate that marriage exists precisely as a picture of this. It's not just a nice comparison. I think it's uh, what Paul even goes on to say marriage is supposed to be, right? Like, <laughs> when are you married? When are you officially married? When do you become a married person? It's a real question. Yeah, at the, at the altar, right? Like when you, when you make certain vows. Now, it would be weird for me to say, right, I've, I've conducted weddings, it would be weird to, to officiate those vows, and then say, now you're going to have to work to be married. Right? It's like, no, what do I do? I say, it is now my privilege as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to present to you for the very first time, right? Um, in light of these vows that you have made and these witnesses that you stand, you're married. But I would actually be a poor counselor. I would be a bad pastor if I didn't tell them, you're going to have to work out what you just vowed to. You've got to work this out. Married people, is marriage work? <laughs> yes. Is the work what makes you married? No, isn't that interesting? I think it's exactly why that analogy works so beautifully and why God gave it to us. Now, here's, here's also what this isn't saying. If I, <laughs> right, like if I told um, a married couple, right, they, they come for counsel. I'm like, well, you just got to work to stay married, right? Like, is that, the, is that the goal? In one sense, yes, absolutely, it's the goal. Is that, is that the highest goal of marriage, though? No. Of course, it's to fully embody the vows that you've been given and to find joy as you do that in, in that new identity as a husband and wife, amen? Okay. So do we work to stay saved? I wouldn't be too quick to say no. I would just say that's not the ultimate goal. Your obedience is not about staying saved. Your obedience is about fully living into the joy, the peace, the relationship that has been solely and completely won by something done prior to anything that you've done, namely the grace of Jesus to die on behalf of your sins and to rise again victorious over the very worst things you've ever done and will do. Amen, <laughs> right? Like, and so work out your salvation is about that. It's about becoming who you already are in Christ. And I love what he caveats this with. He says, with fear and trembling. It's an interesting phrase because I don't know about you, but fear and trembling sounds like maybe not like a happy posture to take. Um, right? Maybe uh, work out your salvation with, this sounds just as much like Paul, right? Like, work out your salvation with joy and anticipation. Like, oh, sweet. Why with fear and trembling? First of all, this phrase, the, these two words packed together, fear and trembling, are primarily used, especially in, in the Old Testament scriptures, to speak of how God's enemies feel about God when God does something crazy in the world is the rest of the world looks on and in fear and trembling acknowledges that Yahweh is the one and true God. I would tend to say, I think we need to wrestle with that use of it precisely because of everything that follows here, which is like a deep dive into some Old Testament stuff. But why would Paul apply that? And I really thought so much about this this week. Is Why would Paul apply that to us working out our salvation? I think because so much of the Christian life 
this is, this is as, as best as I could come to in, in reading various things is I just think that so much of the Christian life comes down to who do you really fear at the end of the day? What do you fear most? Who's, whose opinion of you matters most? And I think that there is a kind of fear and trembling that comes in healthy, thriving human relationships. What we're not talking about here, because also I, I want to say that the New Testament picks up this phrase and, and does at times use it more in the sense of reverence and awe. Kind of uses it that way. And I think that that's okay, but I don't want to soften it so much. But there is a sense in which, like, uh, I'm married. And there's a sense in which I, I fear my wife. Yeah. I mean, the way you're laughing about it, yeah, I do, like a little bit. But I, I fear, no, I don't. Um, I love my wife. But I fear her, um, I fear hurting her. I fear disappointing her. I fear her being disappointed with me, right? And, and I think that that's good. I think that that's a good thing, that I don't take lightly the opinion and posture of this person that I love so deeply toward me. And I think that that's what it's saying, our posture towards God. Not a, not a, um, not a trembling of, oh no, this is someone, um, a trembling like going into a job interview with some stranger you've never met and you're nervous and you're trembling. And you're like, I have no idea what's about to happen in this interaction. Or, you know, whatever, you get pulled over and here comes the state trooper walking up to you, and there's fear and trembling because you're like, ooh, I don't like this interaction with authority. That's not the image that Paul has remotely given us thus far of who God is. Instead, I think it's the fear and trembling of, at the end of the day, the opinion, the posture of God toward me. I so desperately want his opinion. I want his um, Yeah, I want his gaze to be the one that I feel the most throughout a day. And how often is that the case for us, if we're honest? We fear and we tremble so often in life about the opinion of others, about some in-group that we want to be in. We, uh, we fear and tremble as we post something on social of whether it will be received and lauded in the way that we hope that it will be. We feel the eyes. I, I, I just can't help but think that most, and now some of us, God bless you. Think of certain like Enneagram types where it's like, I don't care what anybody thinks. Like, I would love some of that. But for most of us, right, like for most of us, we feel the eyes of so many upon us all the time. And we forget that there's one whose eyes matter infinitely more than anyone else's. And I think the way to recapture that is to remember every now and then who we're dealing with because we should tremble a little bit because it's a massively huge deal to interact with the God of the universe and to truly believe that one day you and I, we will give an account for what we did in the flesh, whether good or evil. That will happen to each one of us. And that should cause us some fear some trembling, but not in the, oh, no, what's going to happen in the, 
This is someone who has loved me so perfectly and deeply that I would rather meet his eyes daily than only once at the end of my life. Does that make sense? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Four, there's another four. Here's why you should do that. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why should you work? Because God's already working in you. This is why you don't work for your salvation. This is why you work out what's already being worked in you. This is talking about irreducibly, this is talking about the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in our life. And it says that it is God's presence within us, that this is a power working from the inside out, both to will and to work according to God's good pleasure. That God works at the level of our desires. God gives us new desires. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives us a new will. We want different things than we once wanted. Christian, follower of Jesus, who's been walking with God for some amount of time, you do not want what you once wanted. Isn't that crazy? Like, give yourself permission. A lot of us are really hard on ourselves. Give yourself permission to see, just for one second, that you are not who you once were. And not just externally, behaviorally, but internally in terms of what you desire. That's crazy, isn't it? What can do that? Only something with access to those desires. That's what the Spirit of God does in your life. Now, if you're like me, you have an immediate, uh, what? What do you call it? Like, issue with that. You have an immediate pushback to that. Because you're like, yeah, but I still desire stuff that I know I'm not supposed to desire. Well, yeah, here's, here's where what we've talked about a lot in discipleship is really helpful, is that God is working at the level of our desires and making our deepest desires more in line with what he is. But the reality of just life, and this is the witness of Christians throughout the ages, is that we still have these stronger desires that get in the way of those deeper desires. This is precisely why you just push back on what I said, because you feel the tension between those two things. You feel the sense in which, yeah, I have a deep desire to be a different kind of person. I have a deep desire to say no to things that I was once pursuing and running after, but I don't always succeed. And I would say, yeah, exactly, because there's new deep desires at work in you, but you're still in this body of flesh. This is, this is, again, this is just what the New Testament says about what it means to be human and a follower of Jesus, is you live in this tension. But the presence of that tension means there's something going on in you that wasn't going on before. And that's amazing. That's extraordinary. The fact that you hate the sin that lingers in your life, the stuff that you have sworn off a thousand times that keeps rearing its head, the fact that you hate it more and more and more every time it pops up is because of this. Because there is one working in you to will and to work according to new kinds of pleasures that are defined by God himself. So that tension is actually God saying, yeah, there's something new going on in here. You're not who you once were. You know what the enemy wants to say? No, 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 you're exactly who you were. 
That's why you're still wrestling with this stuff. The Spirit of God is saying, yeah, but he don't want it anymore. He don't want it. That's why he's staying up at night. That's why he's frustrated by it. That's why he actually texts someone and says, hey, I'm struggling with this. Would you pray for me? This is why she actually is willing to be held accountable. It's actually why she opens her Bible every now and then. She don't want it anymore. And then the enemy speaks and says, no, 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 don't listen to any of that. Now there's one moving in you, follower of Jesus, to will and to work according to his good pleasure, which guess what? His good pleasure and our good pleasure are often massively misaligned, right? We are not very good individually, and we are certainly not good corporately as human beings at figuring out what will actually bring us lasting joy and pleasure. Do you know that? Do you believe that by now? after how many tens of thousands of years of human existence? We're awful at this. The stuff that so many of us spend our whole lives chasing, giving all of our energy to, end up becoming sand in our hands. Because humans' definition of good pleasure has from the beginning been flipped upside down. And we glory in our shame, to use New Testament language for it. Look at the people, this is why I'm uh, obsessed with the subgenre of uh, celebrities in the midst of their ascension to stardom who for some, God bless them, make biopics at the, or um, what do you call them, documentaries at that time? Like Demi Lovato um, had one, uh, who else have we watched? Katy Perry had one. And so like, don't make, by the way, if you get really famous and you're a pop star, don't make the documentary when you're like 22. Because you will look back at that thing and be like, why did I put a camera on during this time? Because here's what happens, is we're watching someone get everything that they wanted without the character to remotely sustain it. And then it inevitably ends not with a happy ending. They put the cameras on because they thought this is going to be the happiest time in my life. And by the end, they're almost all in tears because the human soul was not made for what they are actually achieving, for what they are actually gaining, for the wealth that they're gaining, the attention, the popularity that they're gaining. And yet we watch it because we say, I would love to be that. No, you wouldn't. It's a, it's a sad ending because God has been screaming to the human race saying, you guys are awful at figuring out what is best for you. Would you not read the signs of the times that the people who have the most followers on Instagram, I guarantee you pull back the layers or just take off the filter or whatever the common way to say it would be now is, and there is not the happiness that you assume there is. So stop following them. Literally, maybe. <laughs> Click that button, right? But you know what I mean, right? There's following like that, and then there's the following where your soul says, I know I'm a Christian, but oh, I really wish I had what the Kardashians had. Do you? Right? Do you know that what God is working in you, I'm preaching this to myself, is actually for your best? I think that sometimes we think like, if I were a fully obedient human being, let's be real. All right, so I go like all in on this Christian thing. I really follow God with everything I have. My life becomes about loving other people well. I say no to sin very regularly in my life. Let's be real. I'm miserable, right? I'm miserable. I have to say no to all the stuff that this world knows is really a blast, right? 
And then I'm like this like weird, countercultural, like just weirdo. And probably everyone by then is like, oh, he's a little much or whatever, right? That's what we believe. That God is working for his good pleasure because God loves a miserable human being, right? God loves nothing more than a human being that has said no to all the fun stuff to prove just how much we prefer God to all the stuff that's actually fun. That is a lie from the enemy. That is a lie from the enemy of your soul. And so often the only thing that we have to experientially point to that is when you do allow yourself to go to those places that the Spirit of God is saying no to and you allow yourself to dive whole into them, the experience on the other side of that, the misery on the other side of that is trying to wake you up. That is not the only thing that God wants in our experiential arsenal. What he wants is he says, just give me a little bit and I'll show you how much better it is. Give me a little bit of holiness. Give me a little bit of communion with me. Give me a little bit of time in my word. Give me a little bit of accountability in community. Give me a little bit of like actual prayer, like actual open your mouth and talk to me and see what it feels like to put your head on the pillow that night. But so few of us ever even give that a remote chance that all we have is the misery of not doing it to say maybe there's a better way. And the whole Christian life of discipleship is an invitation into that better way. That what God is working and willing in you is not only for his good pleasure, it is for your absolute, complete joy and pleasure and good. And yet, it's not going to look like the world. It's not going to look like fame and success and a bunch of followers, right? Like even that in the Christian world normally goes really badly. Listen to your podcast, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't go well for us either. There's no way to play both games. You'll be boring to the world. You will never be more satisfied internally. I feel like that's the invitation. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That came out of nowhere, right? I'm in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I'll keep going. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured... <clears throat> wait, so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud, there it is, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is like the first verse we want our kids to memorize. Um, and this was not written to kids. <laughs> this was written to adults. So maybe we memorize it. Um, and then we tell kids, hey, God's been working on me on this. Maybe this is something that you would want, right? Because this is not about um, don't complain when your parents don't pull into Sonic the way you want them to, right? Like, this is a much bigger, there's actually a lot going on here. It's a really cool passage. Um, but on, on the face of it, what Paul is saying is, catch this, that so much of the life of faithfulness and obedience comes down to do not grumble or dispute. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I would put this like, way down the list of like the 100 most important commands that a Christian could follow. Paul's putting it well at the top. Don't grumble or complain. A lot of your faithfulness, a lot of living in light of what's true in the Christ hymn comes down to don't grumble, don't complain. And insofar as you do that, you become blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, you shine as a light 
Don't grumble. Don't complain. Right? Like, and how true is this, right? Like, I don't know where you work, um, but my guess is, right, like, I think of teachers. God bless you, teachers. Um, right? Teacher's room. No, you shine as lights in the teacher's room. Do not grumble or complain, right? Um, right? Like, I always think of, uh, I shouldn't say who it is, one of our elders very commonly when you ask him how he's doing, he's like, I can't complain. And my, and my honest answer is like, I know you well enough. Yes, you can. Like, you have so much to complain about. Like, you're carrying so much. There's so many heavy things going on. But the posture of a Christian is to say, I can't complain precisely because what I have outweighs what I don't have. What I've been given outweighs what, what's been withheld from me. What's ahead of me is more significant than what's behind me. The hope that's out ahead of me is far more important to set my eyes on than my grievances behind me. Shine as lights in the world, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that knows nothing but grumbling and complaining, right? That's why Twitter exists. It's because that's what we do, right? Like, that's why... That's why um, I just read this. Do you know that there are, what is it, three billion people on Facebook now? It's insane. Half the planet was like, yes, <laughs> that's where I want to be. Because um, we love it, right? Like we love this false sense in which I'm heard in my grievances. That's surface level. There's something much deeper going on here because Paul is very clearly picking up on the story of the Old Testament in which the foundational sin of God's people this is after, if you're with us in the book of Hebrews, I really hope a lot of what I'm about to say is familiar to you. So the New Testament very much picks up on this image that God's people are in a very similar situation to what we're in, to what God's people were in in the Old Testament, particularly after God's dramatic rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. Right? Even if you haven't been around church very much, you might know this from Prince of Egypt. So he frees his people, or from, what's his face, uh, Charlton Heston, uh, frees his people, brings them through the waters, defeats Egypt, uh, and then they're wandering in the wilderness for many years, ultimately on their way to the promised land. And the foundational sin of God's people throughout, especially that time of wandering, is what? They, yeah, they complain. They grumble and complain. Same exact word that's used here. I, I won't load up all the Old Testament references just for the sake of time, but again and again, this is what the people do. They grumble these two words, they grumble and they complain, they dispute among themselves, they go to Moses, they're like, you need to talk to your God because this is ridiculous. Yeah, thank you for freeing us from slavery, but we're hungry and we lack resources out here in the desert. And, and this ends up being something that God very, very dramatically judges. But I want you to listen to two places in particular. Uh, the first is from uh, Moses's kind of farewell speech to the people. And I just want you to hear one little phrase here. Pam, you can put that one slide up. I knew this was going to be small, but you got to kind of see them together. Okay, so this Deuteronomy 31 passage is from Moses's farewell speech. So kind of like a, a U.S. president gives when they're headed out of office, they give kind of their final word. This is what Moses is doing here. And he says, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Very nice thing to say to the people you've led for your whole life. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Keep in mind how this passage started. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So what's he doing? He's kind of like, yeah, he's kind of like flipping all of the imagery here. So insofar as Moses is like, you guys are the, you guys are the worst. Um, you didn't even obey while I was standing here. Like, I'm here and I can see what you're doing and you're doing it anyway. What in the world's going to happen when I die, right? Like, Paul is like, my beloved, <laughs> you've always obeyed in my presence. And now I want you to continue obeying and I'm, and I'm confident that you'll continue obeying. Then this is uh, further on in, in the same speech. This is, this is the song of Moses. Uh, so this is his speech kind of put to poetry, put to music. And it's, they, that's God's people, have dealt corruptly with him, that's God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Don't grumble or complain that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, no longer his children, without blemish, they are blemished. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, they are a crooked and twisted generation. Interesting, right? I'll give you a second with that. Cool, right? (laughs) But what's the point? But why? What's he doing here? This goes back to our series in Hebrews because we said um, that the essential difference between what's true of us now after what Christ has done and what was true of God's people in the Old Testament is while we find ourselves in a similar situation, we have completely different resources in the midst of that situation. So here's what I love about Hebrews, and here's what I love about Paul picking these particular verses to to pick up on, is I really appreciate the acknowledgement that the Christian life often feels like it exists between something amazing that's happened and something that's yet to happen. And the Christian life a lot of times feels like wilderness. This is an acknowledgement of that. It's saying, yeah, you're in the wilderness. You are between a great act of salvation that's happened and the promised land which is ahead of you, this place of eternal peace and rest and things being as they should be. That means right now, you're in the wilderness. That's why it's so hard. (laughs) That's why there's work to be done. That's why grumbling and complaining is so unbelievably easy Because objectively, there are things to grumble and complain about in the desert, right? Like, I don't know many people who vacation in the desert, like the desert desert, right? Like, oh, we're going out, you know, 60 miles into the middle of nowhere in wherever. Where's the desert in America? I don't know. What'd you say? I thought you said Tennessee. Arizona, and we're just going to kind of, because we just love it, you know, like we love the lack of resources. We love that there's no water and no, nothing to look at and, you know. But here's what it's saying. Is it saying, insofar as the people of God in the wilderness in the Old Testament had this great salvation behind them, you have a greater salvation. Because your salvation actually worked within you. 
it actually worked something from the inside out. It wasn't just external freedom. It was internal freedom. It was the creation of this tension within you between these deep dire desires that are starting and these stronger desires that are slowly in fits and starts beginning to die off in you. The people of God had, had God's presence visibly ahead of them, pillar of fire, the cloud, that, that whole thing, right? You have the presence of God working in you to will and to work. The presence of God goes with you in the midst of this. And the promised land that's ahead of you is not a destination on a GPS. It's an entirely renewed cosmos. It is all of creation changed into exactly what God wanted to be, including yourself. Therefore, our perseverance comes with a different kind of expectation. Therefore, our Moses, if you will, in this case, can stand in front of us and say, my expectation for you, church, is faithfulness in the wilderness. You will succeed where God's people failed. Do you believe that? Do you believe that for yourself? Do you believe that for this church? Do I believe that for myself? Do I believe that for you? This might sound really audacious, but unlike that little voice within us, I actually believe that the New Testament is incredibly optimistic about the people of God and the extent to which we will persevere to the end. And I think some of us have so, such low expectations because we're so pessimistic about ourselves that we live in fear and trembling about our own ability to get to the end. When what this passage says is your fear and trembling is misplaced. If you were to fear and tremble at the one who has actually provided everything you need in the wilderness, your expectations would become far more optimistic because they'll become his expectations. And he is working and willing good things within you, not so that you fail, so that you will come to the end and be with him one day. So much of the life of discipleship, of fighting sin, of seeking obedience comes down to really what, what do you expect? What are your expectations? Do you think you're in a losing battle with yourself? This text would say you're not. You're not. And you need to wake up to the reality that there is one who is so much more deeply invested in your good than that accusing voice in your mind. And all that we're called to, if there is any role that we play in, in salvation, the word that I love is we're participants at best. We are not initiators. We are not the ones bringing the power to it. We are not the ones who have to change our desires through sheer grit. We just participate in what's already going on within us. Paul ends this passage by saying that we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's using, again, language from the Old Testament. I won't go into this in great detail. But basically what he's saying is, he's, is I mean, he's, he's kind of contemplating, like, if this goes the way I think it's going to go, and I end up dying here in jail, as long as you get to the end, it will have all been worth it. And if you get to the end, rejoice in that. Don't worry about me 
and the outcome of my life? Because that's what I lived for. This is Paul earlier saying, for me to live is Christ in sacrificial service to you. For me to die is gain. So if I die, gain. If I die and you get to the end, rejoice. Because that's what I'll be doing. I think what Paul is modeling to us here is something that runs against the current of our, of our culture of you know, 300 years of culture in the West, which is we are so unbelievably focused on individual salvation, on our own salvation. Right? Like I can guarantee, because this is what I did all week, I can guarantee that you have heard 90% of this for yourself, which is good in some ways. But I want you to know that all the you's here, Y-O-U's, are second person plurals. They're y'alls. So he's saying, therefore, my beloved, as y'all have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out y'all's own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, what he's modeling for us is he's saying, we need to be deeply invested in getting each other to the end. And why is he saying that? Because he started this by saying, therefore. The therefore is because of the Christ hymn. And what does the Christ hymn say? That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead what humbled himself, emptied himself, became nothing in order to take the form of a servant, that his obedience was wrapped up in, do I accomplish what God set me to accomplish on behalf of other people, right? It's a life of service. It's a, I'm bringing, one of my favorite uh, texts in Hebrews is that what Jesus did brought many sons and daughters to glory. That Jesus said, y'all are coming with me, right? That's the model for us here. That's part of what the example of Jesus is meant to say is, I'm not going alone. Y'all are coming with me, right? Like I am deeply invested in seeing you get to the end. Can you say that about anyone in your life? Can you say that about a handful of people in your life? Praise God for that. Can we widen that a little bit? Can you look to your right and left and say, man, when was the last time that I considered what am I doing right now to make sure that they're going to get to the end? You know how much that would transform a Christian community if we live that way? Right? Not just this weird sense of when someone's struggling and going through a thing, it's the right Christian thing to do. Because I think that that's about us. That's even about our guilt which is like, I want to do the right Christian thing and be seen as a good Christian. It's a subtle, but I think it changes everything to say, no, I want to make sure they get to the end with me. It's about them. It's about what they're going through. Therefore, I don't have to say the perfect thing, do the perfect thing, have the perfect scripture when I go. I just got to show up and say, look, I want you to get to the end. I don't know how to do that, but I'm here to try and get you there, right? Because what a day it would be to get to that day when we shall see him face to face. And to be standing on a line, and I think so often we picture that line bizarrely single-filed, right? And it's like, I'm up next, right? Like fear and trembling, what's going to happen? Here it comes, right? What if instead our picture was, we're up, Jacob's well, we're up. Then we did it. Then we all go. We all go in with our kids our friends, our spouses, Paul and Abby Helms, who haven't been here in six years, right? 
I'm just feeling that, right? Man, what a vision. Right? And we wouldn't just even go up as couples or families or whatever, but we all go. strikes me right now that there's one moment where we do that together already. It's this table. That's why the Apostle Paul says there's something beautiful about eating from the same loaf, and we're, we're expanding that. Um, uh, but that's what he's getting at. He's saying every Sunday, every time that you gather, people of God, you're experiencing something that points to what promised land for us means, which is we all stand at this table, level playing field, but we come together. This is where you're doing communion this morning. And so do it as the family of God this morning. Doing, do it with a little bit even more consciousness than maybe you normally have of you're not the only one approaching this table this morning. I'd encourage you to sit um, and to watch others come to this table. It's why my favorite thing that we get to do every year as elders is stand on Good Friday behind these tables and actually offer this to you. Because it's good for my faith. It's good for me to be reminded I'm not alone in this. So why don't we just end there? Um, 